The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, the Bible that Jesus used, yes. They had all of it. They had all of it. Um, the, the Old Testament appears to have been finalized. Please. Um, we have Greek translation of the entire Old Testament that was coming together between 300 and 250 B.C. And uh, the last book of the Old Testament... Malachi was written around between 430 and 400 B.C. Written. Was written. And um, so the most likely time that all this was put together, in my mind, was right around then. Um, 400 years before Jesus, the Old Testament was done. And so the Bible Jesus used was more than the five books of Moses. Isaiah that we're going to look at today was preaching 700 years before Jesus, and I see no reason that he didn't have, that his words weren't written down as soon as all that he prophesied. Well, I think he, he's the most likely candidate for having written down his own words, but that they were recognized as Bible was, um, I mean, there's all these prophets in the ancient world. What made these particular prophets that we have in our Bible recognized as the real deal, when the majority of their audience were pagan going after other voices that were a lot easier to listen to, voices that weren't telling them that they were sinners. And the biggest answer that I would see is 723, Assyria falls, uh, sorry, Samaria falls by Assyria. 586, Jerusalem falls by Babylon. And in 516, the second temple was rebuilt. All of those were foretold by the prophets. So as soon as the major events happen that these guys were saying, and they were the minority voice, all of a sudden everything else that they were saying is shown to be true, and it's recognized as Bible from that point forward. Scrolls? Mm-hmm. I guess I always think of Torah as... Uh, the... There, is, there are, are some instances in the New Testament where Torah is used for the entire Old Testament, but it's very rare. Most commonly, the Torah is applied to just the five books of Moses, but Jesus says he has the Torah of Moses, the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms. He has more than just the Torah. He has all the prophets, including Isaiah. He preaches from Isaiah. He cites Isaiah. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, he'll say, so this is his Bible. And so what was on, I mean, it probably at least contained the law of Moses. We need lots of scrolls because um, the average scroll was about 30 feet long. That was as big as they would get. And then they would put it on a new scroll. Um, so libraries of the ancient world were loaded with scrolls, but there's good evidence that every scroll had its own pocket and that even the arrangement of those scrolls was recognized way earlier than the New Testament times. 
And that's why I'm even, um, why I focused on this class on arrangement and not only the books that are in the Old Testament, but that the arrangement matters. That when Jesus said the blood of the martyrs from Abel all the way to Zechariah, that he's talking there most likely in accordance with the arrangement of his Bible, because Zechariah was not the last of the prophets who was killed. But in the book of Chronicles, which is the last book in Jesus' Bible, he was the last martyr. And Abel was the first martyr in the book of Genesis. Or when Jesus said, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, he's designating a three-part Old Testament canon. He has a Bible... It doesn't contain any of the New Testament books, but it contains all the same Old Testament books that we have in our English Bibles, but in a different order. It was much more than just Moses. Moses wrote about him, but so did many, many other prophets. So the Bible Jesus used, and today the gospel is going to become massively clear. In the Old Testament... We are told, for example, in Galatians, that the gospel was proclaimed to Abraham. Through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Paul in Galatians 3 says that's good news that was proclaimed to Abraham. But if we look in Genesis 12 through 22, we see no use of the word good news, gospel. But we're supposed to read it as good news. Similarly, in Hebrews chapter 4, it opens in 4 verse 2 saying that the wilderness generation, when they sent in the 12 spies, they heard good news. They heard gospel just like we have heard the gospel, says the writer to the Hebrews. But it didn't benefit them because, it, because the majority were not united in faith with Caleb and, Josh, Caleb and Joshua. But it says what they heard back there in the wilderness, they, it calls it good news. They heard the gospel, but it wasn't united with faith. And therefore, when the good news is heard and you don't believe it, it's not good news to you. But we look hopelessly to find the word good news. It's one word in the Hebrew text. We, look, we don't find gospel anywhere back there in the book of Numbers. But when we read the story, we're supposed to see what Moses is telling them about entering into the land and about God fighting for them and overcoming their pain, overcoming their problems. Good news! God's that big! And He's working for you! That's good news! But but we don't find the term. It's in Isaiah. Isaiah is the first prophet who, when looking to the future, says, when darkness is overcome, when sin is defeated... We want to term that good news. He actually uses the exact language, and in the Greek translation of the Septuagint, called the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it uses the exact terms that we find all throughout the New Testament related to gospel or good news. It translates that in Isaiah. And Isaiah has a forward focus in these particular texts, and that's what we're going to look at today. Here is the outline of the book, and we are going to jump right here. Comfort and redemption for Zion 
and the world. Now, in the New Testament, we talk about evangelism. Now, usually when when we use that language in contemporary terms, we're talking about an initial encounter where we proclaim the gospel to a non-believer. But in the New Testament, the language of euangelizo, where evangelism comes from, is much broader than that. It's any time good news is proclaimed, or the noun, gospel, or good news, these show up everywhere. The gospel was the essence of Jesus' teaching. So when we read the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we read through the story of Jesus and we hear his words, he summarized it as a good news message. And he went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Gospel and good news are exactly the same. There's no difference. So some translations render it good news, other translations will render it gospel, but it's the same idea. And it's focused on proclamation. Jesus was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. It's good news about the kingdom. Jesus said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, because this is why I was sent. I was sent to be a good news preacher. And when he uses the language of good news, what I want to show us today is it's not coming out of the blue. These people who were reading their Old Testaments and hoping for the coming day when the Messiah would come, what they were hoping for was a good news day. And Isaiah is the first Old Testament preacher to use that language of the future. The gospel is about what Jesus accomplished through his death and resurrection. Look at how Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached. All that I was talking about was good news. I want to remind you what the nature of that good news was. And then he tells us right here. I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and which you stand today. We stand as believers in the gospel and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Well, tell me, remind me what it is. I remind you of the gospel that I preached, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Here it is. He's going to unpack the good news that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And not only was he raised, he appeared, and he appeared, and he appeared, and he appeared. He appeared to Cephas, and then he appeared to the Twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. You can go talk to them, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me. Good news, Paul says. The gospel finds its source in God, was anticipated in the Old Testament prophets, and concerns Jesus Christ as Son of David and Son of God. Here's Paul, opens up his letter to the Romans this way, I am a servant of Christ, Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart 
for the good news of God. The good news of God. It comes from Him. The source of all good news is God for Paul. Apart from God, there is no good news. It's the good news which God promised beforehand through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That's the Old Testament. Paul's Bible included the prophetic proclamation of good news. So it comes from God, it comes through the avenue of the Scriptures, and it concerns something. Good news concerning Jesus, concerning the Son, God's Son. It's the Gospel of God concerning His Son. And we can read about it in the prophets. It's concerning His Son who was bound up in space and time. He has a lineage that goes all the way back to David. Remember, Jesus said it was the good news of the kingdom. So Paul wants us to connect it with David to all of those Messiah hopes when the royal deliverer would rise. The new David. He's descended from David according to the flesh, but he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of Holiness by His resurrection. The resurrection is the decisive turning point that brings the gospel to bear on reality. So the writer of the Hebrews can indeed say, we are living in the last days. In former days, God spoke to us through His prophets, but in these last days, right now, the end times are upon us. All the Old Testament hopes are actively working them their way out. Fulfillment has begun to be fulfilled with the resurrection. Good news concerning Jesus, who was proven to be the Son of God by His resurrection. The gospel is the means by which Jew and Gentile alike are to persevere unto salvation. Salvation in the New Testament is not just past tense. We are being saved and we will be saved. And it's the gospel that moves us along from point A to point Z. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel concerning Jesus, the gospel that comes from God, the gospel that the prophets proclaimed, I am not ashamed of it, for it is the power of God for salvation. For everyone who believes. That was our message this morning that Pastor Jason shared, the the centrality of believing. And believing is absolutely dependent on the king to make it happen. The gospel is the power of God for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And then the end will come only after the gospel is proclaimed the end of the earth. This is the gospel, and this gospel, this good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, comfort and redemption for Zion. That's the part of Isaiah we're going to focus in on. The main part of the message begins in chapter 40, which is the turning point and handles Messiah. 
The tenor solo comes in. Comfort, comfort. That's Isaiah chapter 40. So I invite you to open up your Bibles there to Isaiah 40. And I just want us to look at the structure here of this unit. Universal, universal. That frames the section. The proclamation that there's going to be universal consolation. Universal hope. Universal help. Regardless of color or sex or race. It's going to blow through the restored Israelites, and move its way out to a remnant from the nations. People from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. That's Isaiah's vision. That the good news of the kingdom will reach that far. Now there comes promises. And in Isaiah, the promises are twofold. They focus on redemption. But... The the promise of redemption breaks up into two units, and we already saw this back in Jeremiah. For Israel, redemption would include both release and forgiveness. Or we could put it this way, it necessitated a return to the physical promised land because the king had to be born in Bethlehem. And that wasn't enough. Not only will it take 70 years, says Jeremiah, for you to get back to the land, Daniel is going to say it'll take 70 weeks of years until the second half of that promise is fulfilled. You've got to get back to the land, and Cyrus is the liberator. He's even called the servant, but he's only a servant of God to bring about the first step in restoration. Release from bondage, release from Babylon, get back to Jerusalem. But what we read at the end of the Old Testament is that they're there. They've even built a second temple. Jerusalem is being established. But Ezra, at the end of the scripture, is going to say, we're still slaves in our own land. Where's the king? Where's the presence of God? Where's the enemies being put down? Where's the global peace that we were anticipating? Where's the spiritual renewal that help, that gives me what I need to overcome sin? It wasn't there. The majority of Israel, even though they had returned to the land, they had taken step one, they still had not experienced new covenant forgiveness. And Daniel's going to tell us that'll only come 70 weeks of years. But in Isaiah's language, he says, wait for the servant. There's two parts to this restoration, physical and spiritual. Physical slavery, exile, is overcome through Cyrus. Cyrus is the king of Persia who in 538 comes to power and in 530, sorry, 539 comes to power and in 538 says, Israel, you can return to Jerusalem. And so the book of Ezra is going to open, saying, in order to fulfill the word of Jeremiah, 70 years, God raised up Cyrus and sent them back. Isaiah names Cyrus by name, names him by name, 150 years before he's even, he even shows up on the global scene. He calls him Cyrus. 
He will be your deliverer, but only for the first half. He'll get you out of exile, but you'll still be in slavery to sin. The spiritual enslavement, the spiritual bondage will only be overcome by one that is called the servant, by Isaiah. His favorite term for the Messiah is the servant. It puts it in perspective what he was. He's the servant of God, the servant of others. Not serving himself, living in full radical dependence on the one who is guiding every step and doing it for the sake of others. He's the servant. And so atonement is brought out. The promises of redemption, the agents of redemption, and notice where this leads us, all the way up to Isaiah 53. And then proclamation is made to both Jew and Gentile that good news is coming. Now, I'm going to take this exact structure and add some texts to it. So this is exactly what we had on the previous slide, and all I've added was this unit. Now what you'll see is three gospel texts and four servant songs. Between Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 53, the word servant only shows up in the singular. After Isaiah 53, so that's 22 times, I think it's 22. After Isaiah 53, 20 times. It shows up 11 more times, but always in the plural. Something happens in Isaiah 53 that moves the community, the entire nation can be called God's servant who is in rebellion. But then there's these songs, specifically four of them, where the servant, in Isaiah 40 to 53, he's, it's singular, and he's working on behalf of the community. And it can't be the community, it can't be the nation, as we're going to see. It has to be one representing the many. But as soon as atonement happens in Isaiah 53... And resurrection comes forth, and he sees his offspring. If he will become a guilt offering before God, then he will see his offspring, says Isaiah 53.11. He becomes the offering on the altar, and then all of a sudden he sees his offspring. He's no longer dead. He's experienced the resurrection. And by that sacrifice, the righteous one... Isaiah 53.12, will make many, Isaiah 53.11 rather, will make many righteous. And all of a sudden, at this point, the nation that was the servant and the individual who was the servant of God, now, and the, the nation is a rebellious servant, the Messiah is the faithful servant. From this point on in the rest of the book, the term servant always shows up in the plural and it always refers positively to a redeemed group from both the nations and Israel. And they are servants, plural, of the living God because of their identification with the servant represented in the King Jesus. 
So we're going to look at these gospel texts and these four songs. Now, we have 25 minutes. So what we're going to do is start with the gospel texts, three of them. And on the back of your sheet, you've got an area you can fill in. We're just going to walk through these, and I need your help. If you were to say, what is the gospel? I want us to end, be able to come at the end of our time here and say, this is how Isaiah would define the gospel. And I think it will inform our thinking with respect to evangelism and with respect to what will help us and become the power of God unto our own salvation, to keep us persevering when all we see right now is dusk rather than full noon sun. But it can give us hope because the sun has risen over the horizon that, not dusk, dawn, that because it is dawn, that noon is coming. So we're going to begin in Isaiah chapter 40. We're going to look at the three gospel texts, and then hopefully we'll be able to go back and look at some of the servant songs. So Isaiah 40, we have to feel, just try to feel the weight of darkness, feel the weight of sin, feel the weight of separation from God, feel the weight of judgment. 39 chapters of judgment. Much like the 39 books of the Old Testament, many Christian interpreters have noted. An overall picture of darkness in the first half of the book, although as we saw last time, there's this hope that's piercing, Emmanuel, God with us, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The shoot of Jesse will rise and bring in the nations. All that's from early chapters in Isaiah. But the dominant image is one of shadow. And now what we hear in Isaiah 40 is the voice of John the Baptist. Proclaiming as one coming out of the wilderness, speak tenderly to Jerusalem that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from Yahweh's hand double for all of her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all of them cite that. Put it in in John the Baptist's mouth and say, this is come. And we move from the voice of John the Baptist to the great atonement in Isaiah 53 and the climactical new creation in chapters 65 and 66. 66 books in the Old Testament, in the Bible, 39 O-L-D-E, 3, Testament, 9, 3, time, three plus 3 and 9 is 39. New Testament, N-E-W, New, 3, 9 in Testament, 3 times 9 is 27. So you got 66 books, 66 chapters in Isaiah, 39 of darkness, 27 filled with light. They start with... John the Baptist's voice, it climaxes in the Isaiah 53 victory of the cross, 
and it culminates in new creation at the end. A mini Bible bound up right here in Isaiah. So let's look at these servant texts. Isaiah 40, 9 through 11. It opens up this way. I'm going to read it, and then you're going to tell me what the good news is, and I'm just going to write it down on the board. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the sovereign Yahweh comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Good news. What's the good news? You tell me. Come on. He's coming with gentleness. But also with power. If you're the victim, you need both. What else? He's bringing a reward. His reward is with him. There's actually discussion among the commentators what is this a reward for God? As in, we're on his side and we're his reward, or is it something he's going to bestow on us? And even within Isaiah, the language is used, it appears in both ways. So it's a little tricky. He brings a reward. What else? And so he's going to offer compensation for what is due. And that could be for good or it could be for ill. In the rest of the book, usually the language of recompense is wrath. Where it's good news for me because finally... Think about how Paul argues in Romans 12. Be good to those who hate you. Do good, not evil, when evil is done to you. Because vengeance is mine, I will repay. Hear that motivation. What motivates me to do good when harm is done to me? My absolute confidence that God knows how bad this is and He will bring justice, much better than I can ever do it. Can that motivate you to love those who hate you? Because you're confident that God knows how serious this sin is. He knows how much pain you've experienced, how much hurt you have, and He says, I know and I will repay. Anything else for Isaiah 40? Sure. This would be both in the realm of provision and protection. Do you need that kind of good news today? The good news of the kingdom has come. 
This is for all who are on the side of the king. There's hope in that. He's going to come like a shepherd, caring for his sheep, protecting his sheep, providing for his sheep. Next text. Now, the introduction to the major two divisions, the promises of redemption and the agents of redemption, of redemption the, inter, the introduction includes both of those, these two, the good news text and the first song. So why don't we just look at the first song together? This is beautiful. All right. Now these songs are narrated. Two of them are autobiographical and one of them is biographical. Sorry, two of them are autobiographical, two of them are biographical. This one is biographical. We're being told about the servant rather than the servant telling us about himself. So let's read it. Isaiah 42, 1 through 9. What do we learn about the servant? Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. What do you learn about the servant right there? He's interested in justice. By whom? God's the talker here. He's got God's, God's got his back. I delight in my servant. All the pleasures of God are pouring in his way. Is that a hand? He's filled with the Spirit. The very presence of God is indwelling him. All the power of heaven is therefore at his disposal. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. What do you learn about the servant in those three verses? Pardon? Patient justice. Patient justice. He's going to bring about justice, and he's not going to give up. What is that, the implication of verse 4 when it says, He will not grow faint or be discouraged? Implication? There's likely going to be things that others that might force others in his role to stop. But he's not going to stop. Whatever it takes, he's going to establish justice. And that means if you're on the side of being a victim, this is hopeful. If you're the one experiencing pain and need to be pulled out of it, he's not going to stop until you're cared for. He's that kind of a servant. God's given him a mission. He's going to finish that mission. What else do we learn in those verses? 
Verse 2, what do you see? What does it suggest? Meekness. Meekness. So he's not the kind that is going to go about his task. I call this the servant's ministry. Each one of these songs, I have a title that I've tried to capture it. His ministry is not one that says, look at me, look at me. Jesus said in John chapter 6, you'll know if a teacher is right not by um, the way you judge proper teaching is whether he's bringing glory to the Father rather than to himself. He's not going to operate in a loud way. He's going to have a quiet disposition, and yet he's one who's going to act in a way, work in a way that's going to establish justice and bring down all injustice. How about verse 3? What do you read? He's gentle. I am confident that you're either a person who needs to know that a faintly burning wick he won't blow out, or you know someone who needs to hear it. He sees a bruised reed. He doesn't break it off. And he won't break you off. This portrait of the servant is so hope-filled, hope-giving. And then we go to the text we were at over Christmas in Philippians chapter 2. And we see that the way of the servant is also supposed to be the way of us. Let this mind be among yourselves as was in Christ. And all of a sudden, I've, I've wanted to do this. Maybe the Lord will give me the chance someday. To go through and preach the servant songs. Preach all the way through them once with a great focus on the Messiah and then preach through them the second time in light of the fact that the Messiah is the pattern for us. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. And if you are in him, you will be the same way. When your spouse is discouraged, you won't add discouragement upon discouragement. You'll seek to care for him, care for her. When your children already recognize how sinful they are, you won't add upon it. You'll meet them with grace. It's the way Jesus meets us. Excellent observation. Thus says God, Yahweh, who created the heavens and stretched them out. I'm in verse 5. Who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. He's talking to the servant. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you, singular servant, as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the, bl- the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am Yahweh. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. What that means is all this ministry of the servant is not going to be in any way taking glory from God, the Father. From Yahweh, rather. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. 
Before they spring forth, I tell them to you. So God says, I have called you in righteousness. I'll take you by the hand and keep you. I'll give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. What does that suggest? What would you add? What else do you learn about the servant in verses 6 and 7? Universal hope. This is a hope that moves beyond just the people of Israel and suggests that if if the nations are receiving it, the Abrahamic promises are being fulfilled. All the initiative is Yahweh's. I have called you. I will take you. I will keep you. I will give you. Very good. Okay? To open the eyes that are blind. In all the miracles of the Old Testament, never once is a blind man given sight. Never once. Only the Messiah was understood to hold this power. And when Jesus comes on the scene... It's like light shining into the darkness. It's like a Lazarus come forth type moment. It identifies him with this servant. To bring prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. I will accomplish it. Let's go to Isaiah 52, 7 through 10. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of, what does it say? Anybody have an NIV? It says those in the NIV. And it says those even though it's singular in the Hebrew text. But it says those because Paul makes it plural in Romans chapter 10 when he quotes this text and applies it to the church. How will they know unless they're told? How will they be told unless someone preaches to them? How will someone preach unless they are sent? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But what Paul is doing, he's only able to take this text and apply it to the church because the church is identified with Jesus. When this was originally given, this text is talking about the servant who will suffer and die in chapter 53. How beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news, announcing peace, proclaiming Words of happiness, declaring our God reigns. So look at verses. Look at verses um, seven through ten. Tell me what the good news is. Good news. I just want to put it up on the board. Happiness. Peace. Salvation, comfort, this is good stuff, pardon? Okay, specifically, 
and this, this we could have pointed out over here. There's only one, one part. If we're talking about news, like what's the headline? Over here it was, Behold your God. It's the only part of the text that has quotation marks. And in this part, there's only one part that has quotation marks. What is it? Your God reigns. Let's jump to chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news. This is the text that Jesus goes to to inaugurate his ministry in the Gospels. He's in the synagogue at Nazareth. He opens up this text. It's a good news text. And he says, you've been waiting for good news? Will it ever come? Discouragement upon discouragement upon discouragement. He opens up the scroll. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to declare liberty to the captives, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And He rolls up the scroll. What did He leave off? The day of vengeance of our God. He didn't say that part. He said, I'm here to proclaim a year of favor. But he wasn't here in his first appearing to declare the day of vengeance of God. That would come. The day would come. But right now was the year of favor. And he was the one upon whom the Spirit of the Lord was resting. And he was here to proclaim good news. What's the good news in this text? Freedom. Verses 1 through 4. Help for brokenhearted. Gladness. Comfort. Okay, he's the anointed of the Lord. So, so all, all this is going to bring glory to Yahweh. Anything else? Restoration images. He will make the redeemed into oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord. Now now think about that in light of where we were before Christmas. The entire garden has been burnt. And then it was burnt again. All the way down to stumps. As if there was nothing left. Yet a, a shoot rises up. And that shoot now is going to become mighty oaks. There's going to be those that are identified with the shoot of Jesse that are now part of the garden. The new creation has dawned in their lives like oaks rising out of the fire. Now, let's just look at something here. Good news 
has two sides. Good news has parts that point more to God and tell us more about Him. And then there's parts that are received and enjoyed by us. So I just want to walk through really quick each of these, what we've discovered, what is the good news, and I just want to identify, is it focused more on God or more on us? And, and believe me, there's, there's lots here that's focused on us. That's why it's good news for us. Okay, so let's, let's just put it together. And I'm just going to read them and you're going to just tell me whether I put G or us on there. Behold your God. It's focused more on God. God comes. But He comes with gentleness. And He comes with power. What would you say? Pardon? Us? The gentleness seems to... I mean, it's telling us about God, but it's for the benefit of those who are receiving this good news. And the power, that's only good news. I mean, it's telling us something about God, but it's only good news if it means that it's overcoming the enemy. So I, I would maybe put that toward us as well. He brings reward, recompense. Likely us, potentially us, unless we are his reward, but we'll do us. He tends sheep like a shepherd. We're the beneficiaries of that. It seems to be focused more on here. Happiness. Proclaiming news of happiness. Us. Peace. Words of salvation. We're saved. Comfort. We get comforted. Your God reigns. Freedom to captives. Comfort. Gladness. Help for broken hearted. He's the anointed of Yahweh. That Yahweh may be glorified. Restoration. And He'll make us into oaks of righteousness. Now I'm just going to do this because I'm going to make a Gus over here because I usually get to do that and I, that could go either way. Now, here's my question as we try to draw this to get together. If you are not a beneficiary of the us's, do the G's still stand? But if you take the G's away, so, so what I'm saying is, take all those us's away, do the G's still stand? Take the G's away, do the us's still stand? Are you tracking with me? What is the essence of the gospel? God. The reign of God. 
We make a very cheap gospel if we go out and do evangelism and focus all on the happiness they can gain, the peace that will come to them, the forgiveness that will be theirs, and we don't talk about what it cost and the reality of the reign of God, the lordship of God over all things. Because without the lordship of God, without Him conquering death, entering into world and overcoming darkness, if that hasn't happened, there is no hope and help for any sinner. For any cancer victim, for anyone in darkness, for seeing your son who's running away from all that you've taught him. There's no hope to see that redemption unless God reigns. In Isaiah's mind, when he looked to the future and saw good news, it was all centered on, behold your God. It was all centered on, Our God reigns. But He reigns now for us through Jesus. His reign is ultimately through the servant. And if we could have walked through all the other texts, that's that's how it's unpacked. It's good news through the servant to us. The entire gospel is captured already by Isaiah. And he even uses the language So Pastor John's book, God is the Gospel. What's amazing is that he never went to Isaiah. But had he done so, it would have given him massive support for the very claims that he's seeing in the New Testament. But they've just got their Old Testaments open to Isaiah who first proclaimed the eschatological messianic day and called it good news! And there's one level of, yes, by our living, we can identify ourselves as differently, but I've met some very good pagans. It's the news of our profession that will change hearts. It's the good news that overcomes darkness. And at the center of that good news is, my God reigns, and you can submit to Him and enjoy peace, or you can continue to reject Him. And that power will be your enemy. We'll pick up here, Lord willing, next week. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for letting us taste good news in Jesus alone. We're trusting him for the forgiveness of our sins and the fulfillment of all of your promises, even eternal life. Thank you that he was your servant and ours. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.